Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we are going to do something a little bit different. It's going to be a lot, much less scientific talk than normal. So Dr. Carvelis is already sweating uh, because we're going to just kind of speak in less scientific words. Uh, but I wanted to talk about a lot of the questions that we have when we're discussing minimally invasive procedures with patients. Um, you know, minimally invasive procedures from our perspective are the things that kind of are a little bit above uh, injections, kind of the, the typical procedures that most people expect when they're going to an interventional pain management physician um, and before surgery, right? And so, you know, everything from uh, mild to interspinous uh, decompression uh, to, you know, I'd say even radiofrequency ablation probably falls into this world, um, and then definitely the neuromodulation procedures such as monocore stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, dorsal ganglion. Um, you know, a, a lot of these are kind of semi-surgical procedures, uh, but not quite, you know, full open surgeries. And so we get a lot of questions from patients about that. Yeah, and I think one of the beauty of these uh, these interventions, just like Dr. Hova has said, they kind of fall between our medication injection uh, therapy and then the you know a, an open surgery they fall between that but one of the amazing things about them is that they can also come after uh, surgical intervention um, so you know if a patient has had a surgical intervention and has not quite got the outcomes you know that, that they deserve the, or that the provider was looking for uh, then there may this is uh, can be a salvage therapy although as I think Dr. Hovis and I both feel it should not be limited to salvage therapy, especially when we're talking about uh, neurostimulation uh, or neuromodulation. Um, and then the other thing I would bring up that's really attractive about these interventions is that, you know, unfortunately, pain processes often become more significant and more debilitating as patients advance in age, and as patients advance in age, their comorbidities may add up as well. And so. Sometimes we're at a situation where a patient may really need a, a significant surgery, uh, or w I, sh I should say, uh, would be a good candidate for a significant surgery. I think uh, you know a great example is, is uh, uh, spinal stenosis, um, because you know you could have an 80, 90 year old patient that does have severe spinal stenosis. However, they're just not a candidate uh, for an open surgery because of their coronary artery disease and their uh, kidney disease and their liver disease, uh, and therefore, th th this is where the minimally invasive options. You know, a lot of these uh, uh, procedures we're doing with uh, uh, MAC or conscious, conscious sedation, and so you know they're rel although not without risk, they're relatively low risk uh, to the patient, even with uh, fairly significant comorbidities. Yeah. So let's go into a few of the kind of regular questions that we get from patients you know i, I know I'm, I, I hear questions from patients all the time whenever we start bringing these up as options i'm sure you do as well um, you know i think some of the most common ones that i hear um, are you know really concerned about doing something besides you know just having an injection right and so just anything that's beyond you know just putting some medication into a location I think there there are a certain amount of patients that become skeptical, afraid, um, need to be better educated about what we're doing. Um, there's a lot of people that don't like this idea of quote unquote implants um, in their body, right? And so, you know, whenever we're discussing a procedure where there's something that we are leaving behind uh, inside their body, um, patients are like, 
I really don't want something implanted in me. Um, I think that's an interesting one because I've also hear that often from people who have had significant spine surgeries. And so, you know, they have pedicle screws and rods and, you know, various things already, quote unquote, in their body. Uh, and then they're like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know that I can have something implanted in me. Um, and so I think, I think that's another common one. Yeah, I just wanted to second that because I think it's something that I'm still working on uh, understanding because, you know, obviously I don't, at this point, I uh, don't have a knee replacement or a spine infusion, um, and I haven't had to consider, uh, uh, you know, placing a stimulator in, in myself. So it's something I'm, you know, constantly trying to put myself in the patient's position in terms of how they are thinking about it and how they are approaching it. Um, but I agree, you know, you, you could have someone who's had two knee replacements, a hip replacement and, and a spine fusion, but then you bring up the idea of placing a uh, spinal cord stimulator in the epidural space and, uh, and a generator uh, fairly superficially, and they're like, no way. And so, <laughs> and so it is an interesting, um, like I said, trying to put myself in the patient's position, but then importantly, um, uh, you know, educating them in terms of what it really means and where exactly the device is going and how, you know, minimally disruptive uh, to the body and to the tissues uh, it is and, and obviously the potential benefit it has for the patient. Yeah, and I'd say probably, I think we've covered one, two questions, so probably the third most common thing that I hear from patients, um, I don't want to say rebuttal, but question that they have is, um, but is this going to fix Right. And I think we've talked about this conversation of the fix uh, before, um, but th I, I feel like those are probably the three most common things that I hear. Um, so I, I, I think it'd be useful if we kind of just talked about them one by one in the ways that we have these discussions with patients and the ways that we can help patients to understand what it is that we're trying to do, what it is that we're, we're doing to provide them uh, relief uh, and, and the ways that we're trying to uh, evaluate it. Um, so first question is, you know, okay, I've had injections before and I'm okay with medications being injected in me, but really do we need to do some, anything that's beyond just an injection? Like if somebody's bringing that up to you, how do you usually start having that conversation? I think the big question at that point in time is uh, how much benefit for how long uh, we are getting from the procedures because if if the you know, for example, if we take a simple, uh, you know, a very simple example being the uh, epidural steroid injection, if a patient is getting a, you know, one uh, lumbar epidural steroid injection a year, um, and they're getting 12 months of over 50% benefit, then, you know, I, I wouldn't be, you know, thinking about minimally invasive surgical options at that, at that point. But if a patient is getting one or two months of about 40% improvement, um, or less, and you know they're coming back every one to two months, uh, asking for a repeat injection. You know, then we need to start thinking about you know the risk benefits um, uh, uh, of the intervention at that point in time, and we want to start thinking about you know treatment options that will provide uh, longer lasting results uh, with with less risk to the patient. And so, um, I I think ultimately, sorry the. The best way I would put it is, you know, to me, everything ends up being risk benefit, and 
uh, with these minimally invasive surgical options, as we brought up in the beginning, they, they have relatively low risk uh, for the patient. And if we're looking at the risk of this minimally invasive surgical option compared to the risk of doing uh, fairly repetitive uh, and frequent injections, um, and then we look at the potential benefit for the patient, uh, uh, you know, that's what I really try to emphasize to the patient that, look, we can minimize risk and improve benefit uh, with this intervention. Yeah, I think for me, this conversation comes up most often um, when we're first discussing this idea of radiofrequency ablation, um, just because, you know, we have some patients that do fairly well with uh, facet-based procedures, facet joint injections, um, and, you know, can get three, six months, a year of relief out of those procedures at times. Um, and, you know, if that doesn't last long then you bring up this idea of radiofrequency ablation and you know it's I can understand from a patient perspective where it sounds a little scary right I'm where you're going in there you're gonna put a nerve uh, a needle next to a nerve and then you're gonna burn that nerve um, and that can be a little bit intimidating uh, from the patient perspective you know obviously we do the best that we can in terms of educating them no this nerve is a very specific nerve its job is not to make your legs move its job is to sense pain um, but you know that the, that whole idea of not just injecting medication uh, I think is uh, kind of a different um, it's just a different feel for them when they're trying to understand what's happening to their bodies um, but like you said I mean I, it always comes down to those risk benefits right I mean if a facetial injection is not lasting them months on months and months on end you know, our data says that radiofrequency is a very safe, effective procedure that doesn't have a lot, uh, you know, a lot of uh, significant uh, problems associated with it. And so, it is a, a procedure that is slightly more invasive than just injecting steroid into something, um, per se. But but at the same time, I don't know. I don't necessarily think of it uh, as a very invasive procedure. And so, I, I think trying to help patients to get to that point is always. I think that's probably the procedure that. Um, you know, that first hurdle for patients. Yeah, and I think one thing that helps, you know, sp specifically in terms of radiofrequency ablation, if you kind of bring out the spine model and show the patient, look, you know, the needle's going in pretty much in the exact same location uh, as the prior procedures have, the only difference being that once we get there, rather than injecting a medication which has X, Y, or Z risk, we're utilizing heat uh, and or, you know, whatever, um, Radio, uh, radiofrequency ablation, whether that's pulsed or co uh, cooled. Um, so whatever form of radiofrequency ablation you, we are utilizing in that setting, but bottom line, the needles go in the exact same location and then we're using some form of uh, therapy, some form of energy to uh, modify the, the surrounding structures. And then again, like we talked about, uh, discussing the, the risk of that as, as compared to the other, uh, other procedure. Yeah, and that kind of brings up, yeah, you alluded to something that was um, presented uh, to me this past weekend, which I think is a very interesting way to talk about is where you're, you know, if we think of the way that we're utilizing electricity, whether that's radiofrequency ablation, and we're going to kind of go into a little bit more of the neuromodulation uh, techniques, but we're prescribing energy for patients, right, to be able, and, and feeling that by prescribing energy in a certain location, that it's going to make a, a big difference for them, and kind of, you know, thinking about it, uh, you know, thinking about it a little bit differently as something that we are are truly, you know, prescribing to the patient as a specific way of uh, of helping with a certain type of of, uh, of pain pattern. Um, but so, okay, transitioning on. So the next thing that you know, I know we hear on a daily basis is, you know, I I don't want 
something implanted in my body. I don't want a foreign body inside of me. Um, how do you usually start that conversation with a patient? So I, I think the best thing uh, as soon as I hear that is I delve a little bit deeper into that. So I, I try to understand uh, what their concern is because sometimes the concern would be, well, uh, I'm worried about that substance, you know, whatever uh, uh, item is placed in me, if, if that could leak into my bloodstream and cause some sort of reaction, I, I, that's a frequent, when I ask that question, that's a frequent concern. Um, so then I will talk about my understanding of it, but then the other thing I think that is helpful in that setting too is to have uh, the device rep, which is a good resource, actually set up an appointment for the patient to come back to clinic where I will check in with them, but then also have the device rep go over the uh, specific ingredients and the safety data uh, from the manufacturer, because um, uh, that's off, oftentimes helpful for the patient to, to hear it from the manufacturer uh, and, and, the, and the company itself. Yeah. I mean, I think another way um, that I commonly have that conversation, um, you know, I'm obviously starting with kind of what their biggest hiccup is. Uh, and, you know, so if it's, you know, something leaking in their, their bloodstream, um, if it's, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to, to get through customs uh, at the airport, you know, if it's, I'm, I'm not sure uh, that, you know, I want to become a bionic human being, you know, and, and kind of helping them to really understand that whatever preconceived notions that they have of 1984 or an Orwellian future um, is not necessarily what we're trying to do, right? I mean, most of these uh, procedures, devices, um, implants are, you know, very, very small, you know, in terms of their overall size and especially in terms of the volume that they occupy within our body. You know, there's obviously a large amount of safety data that shows that, you know, they're very well tolerated. Um, you know, and, and, you know, in this day and age, yes, you get a, a card that says that you have an implanted uh, device uh, to carry with you at the airport, but most of these alloys are, are things that are not, you know, going to be overly, you know, metal detector, metal detector uh, sensitive. Um, and so they're, they do offer a very um, non-invasive in terms of your life approach, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that we have a lot of patients that after they've had them implanted are really like, this, this has made a really significant difference um, because I have this implant inside my body. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think going back to that, um, that fact that, you know, we've, we've done these on a lot of patients and, you know, across the country, these have been done in thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. Uh, and there's just not a large percentage of patients that have difficulties from any of these implants and uh, you know understanding everybody is different and every person's you know interpretation of what um, you know metal or a, an implant or a battery uh, feels like inside of their body is it's a personal thing um, you know the resounding evidence is that they're they are very safe they are very well tolerated and that people just don't have significant problems with them yeah so I think if and I think a few things that uh, can always be helpful is you know, being familiar with that safety data and being able to tell the patient, look, um, we have this number of year uh, long-term outcomes and uh, we don't have any, you know, significant complications or if there were any significant complications, what percentage they were and, and, and what they were. So being able to communicate that to the patient and then showing them uh, the device, for example, uh, for myself, one of the uh, minimally invasive uh, uh, interventions I've been 
that I have uh, been doing includes the interspinous process decompression, and I have a little life-size model of that. So being able to show them, look, this is what it is. And I think one of the cool things about a lot of these treatments is that because they are relatively low risk and relatively simple, you can very quickly show the patient what you're gonna be doing. For example, with the interspinous process decompression, I just lay out a spine model, be like, look, you know, these are the spinous processes, the bones that you can feel if you reach back there, and then they get a sense of how superficial it is, and I tell them we just make a small incision, cut down to the ligament, and then we you know, place this device here, and then they see, whoa, you know, that's, there's really not too much tissue manipulation or tissue damage going on there, and I see the device, I see how big it is, and then I see mechanically, you know, this is a mechanical problem with stenosis, and this is a mechanical fix. And so I think with a lot of these minimally invasive interventions, like I said, because they're relatively uh, simple and, and safe interventions, we can actually show a patient fairly quickly the steps of what we're going to do. And then once they visualize that, I think their, their comfort level goes up. Yeah. And you left it perfectly open for uh, our transition to the quote-unquote, I want to fix. Um, but I did want to go circle back really, really quickly um, because uh, now in a in t a very 2020 world, um, you know, the last thing about having those devices um, is that if somebody is truly anti having a battery in implanted in them, we do have options for that now too, right? Which, you know, that is, uh, you know, that, that is something that has evolved over time. You know, obviously originally we did not have implanted pulse generators and then they became implanted um, and now we have some, some different external options. And so the variety of uh, options for patients also lends to being able to kind of address the different ways and different objections uh, that patients have because uh, at the end of the day, we just want to provide them options that we feel are going to be beneficial for them. Right. Um, okay. Now back. So you you had brought up uh, the, the this idea of a, a fix, and that is something that I think is um, a very common question from our patients. Is like this is this going to fix things? And and obviously I think for uh, spinal stenosis, um, in th those specific indications, we do have um, minimally invasive procedures that you know do essentially provide a, a fix for them. But not everything, uh, and most of the things we've talked about for chronic pain we're not necessarily talking about fixes, right? And we're talking about ways of being able to manage things and help things and try to do better for them, um, but they're generally not fixes outside of you know the spinal stenosis treatments. So um, take us down that conversation a little bit. That's, that's a really, uh, I think it's one of the most difficult conversations to have, um, really on any level when you're dealing with chronic pain. Um, of course, there are gonna be you know exceptions. Uh, you know if you, you know if you have a really bad disc herniation and it's impinging a nerve, then yeah, there there's going to be you know there's a relative uh, fix to that situation. But I think for the a large uh, proport a large portion of our chronic pain patients, that's what I think like, and that's that's why I say it's such a difficult conversation because in reality and and. Uh, in, I, th I believe, unfortunately, for a lot of these patients, if you, if you take a common patient that we have where they've had three or four lumbar fusions and they're saying, I want this to be fixed, having another surgery, again, like I said, like I said unless there's a severe you know, mechanical impingement upon something or instability or hardware malfunction, then of course, yes, there's, there's a relative fix that, that needs to be pursued. But in a lot of these patients who've had three or four uh, fusions, 
I, I believe that the neuromodulation, the neurostem, is probably the closest thing we have to actually having a significant positive impact that could be considered some sort of, some form of a uh, I don't if I think fixes too strong of a word at that point, but um, but that's the closest thing we have to it because like we've talked about many times before, we you know the problem now has become fairly ingrained in the nervous system, and so I think communicating that to the patient that look we're we're now dealing with somewhat of a neurologic issue a pain pathway issue a, a nerve issue and we're we have a treatment option that can target those uh, that nervous system uh, target those nerves um, and that may be our closest thing to the fix uh, that the patient is is looking for yeah and let's not just leave this at it's your opinion it's also shown in multiple right. studies over time, right? <laughs> like, yes, it is your opinion, uh, but your opinion is based off of the fact that this has been shown in multiple, multiple studies that, you know, reoperation, you know, usually, I mean, even from the time of a second operation, but especially you brought up a third or a fourth or a fifth operation, there is very little data that a fifth operation is going to be the one. Um, yeah, unless there's that, like we said, unless there's that hardware malfunction, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so, you know, it's not just your your opinion but it, it is you know it is the, uh, the 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 assessment of the literature that has brought you to that opinion right and so yeah I mean fix is is a hard thing and, you know and, I, and like I said short of spinal stenosis which now you know we do have these uh, minimally invasive procedures that truly can fix aspects of spinal stenosis you know we're generally not trying to fix things we're generally trying to make life better to improve things to improve quality of life to improve outcomes uh, to improve functional abilities um you know and, and you know i think that is that's always the hardest question for in, in chronic pain and it's always the hardest question you know to answer or discussion to have with our patients um, but it's probably the most important question for what regardless of what we're doing mm -hmm. yeah and I, and I think this is where um which uh, you know, we we apologize for always coming back to you know central and peripheral sensitization, but you know helping the patient understand you that <laughs> helping the patient understand the central and peripheral sensitization as as best we can, uh, you know during the patient visit, and then uh, helping them understand that a lot of our minimally invasive options can actually imp positively impact that, um, whereas there's not much else. Uh, uh, available at that point depending on the patient there's not much else available at that point that can have that impact so I think they can come to grips with it a little better yeah no I, th I that's that's a conversation that we have it's a conversation that we have to have multiple times a day um, I don't know I think we did a good job of kind of uh, talking about three major questions that we hear on a regular basis for these minimally invasive procedures right you know is it is it gonna fix things you know what if I don't want th something implanted in my body you know, or do we really have to do anything that's going to, you know, be more invasive than what we've already done, right? And, you know, and obviously those questions um, are going to be patient-dependent and, and the answers are going to be patient-dependent. It's always going to be based off of the goals of the patient. It's always going to be based off of, you know, the risk benefits, the literature available, the things that we can kind of incorporate for them and provide, you know, hopefully serving it up on nicely on a silver platter of this is the best recommendation that we can make um, based off of all of the things that we have. Finishing comments, concerns? No, that's it. Have a great day. All right, everybody, stay tuned for those legal disclaimers, and we will talk to you soon. Now for that legal disclaimer. 
This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.